0: Hello there, welcome back if you're a repeat listener and welcome if this is your first time with Fabulous Folklore with Icy. This week we're finishing off the witchcraft theme that I decided to put in for March and one of the things that's always fascinated me whenever I read about witches is the idea of sort of potions and and plants and all the herbalism and things like that that goes along with it. Obviously some of the people who would have been accused of witchcraft in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, would have been those who were just skilled with herbs. And these people actually come under what Owen Davies calls the cunning folk. So you'd have a cunning man or a cunning woman, and they'd be like an early pharmacist, essentially. So you might go along to one of them and be like, oh, I've got a really bad earache. And they would give you some kind of concoction and it would probably cure your earache. Witches, on the other hand, were commonly believed to be people who were only really out for nefarious purposes. So you would, you would go and see a cunning person if you needed to be healed or you'd lost something or you needed help in a positive way. Whereas witches were apparently, if you believe the records, just there to curse and hex people and so on. Obviously when I refer to witches, please bear in mind I'm talking about them in the historical sense and I'm talking about them in the sense of how people talked about them at the time, not the modern concept of the witch because that's a completely, I think, a completely different side issue. And you will find many witches practising now are closer to the cunning person. But before we get any further though, why are we looking at plants? Well I think in this particular instance, if you look at a film like Harry Potter, and there's the herbology lesson where they're pulling up the mandrakes and they've got to put the earmuffs on so they don't hear it scream. Now, this was something that J.K. Rowling obviously took directly from folklore. So it's quite interesting to see how plants can end up in forming narratives in this quite interesting way. So I've decided to have a look at three poisonous plants because poisonous plants I find are a lot more interesting. I've looked at toxic plants before. There are links on my website. So if you go to www.icsedgwick.com forward slash henbane hyphen wolfsbane hyphen mandrake the link is in the show notes just in case that's a mouthful which it kind of is. Then you can see pictures of these plants and also the links to my other folklore flower posts that I haven't already turned into podcast episodes. So this week we're going to be having a look at, as you probably guessed, henbane, wolfsbane and mandrake and these are three sort of plants that you might have found in a witch's pantry. So we're going to start with henbane and this is sometimes also known as black nightshade although it's actually got nothing to do with deadly nightshade or it could be called devil's eye and it's highly toxic I mean, and I mean like highly toxic it's so poisonous that even the smell of its flowers can produce giddiness and I was actually at the Annick Garden in their brilliant poison garden and the henbane was actually in bloom and I felt distinctly nauseous when I was anywhere near that plant it really reeks. Its botanical name if I can pronounce this properly is Hyosiamus niger uh, and it's actually a member of the same family as Deadly Nightshade and potatoes and tomatoes. So it just goes to show that every family has some kind of unsavoury characters in it. Now the bane part of henbane comes from an old English word that actually means death. And this particular combination of hen and bane came from the fact that hens were particularly susceptible to dying after they ate its seeds. And according to the Poison Garden website, the seed heads actually look like a jawbone, and there's a thing called the Doctrine of Signatures where medical practitioners would think that a plant did a particular thing or could cure a particular body part because it looked like that particular body part. So in this case, the seed heads looked like a jawbone, so they used it for toothache. And a lot of this comes from the fact that back in the day, people believed toothache was caused by worms inside your teeth which just sounds disgusting, but there you go. There's actually a picture of this on my blog. And one cure involved burning a mixture of frankincense, henbane and onion seeds. And you actually funneled the smoke towards the affected tooth and then the the worms would apparently wriggle out of the tooth and the pain would go off. If you have toothache, please just go and see your dentist. Do not try that one at home. Also, we know that toothache is not caused by worms inside your teeth as well. So symptoms of henbane poisoning can include hallucinations, restlessness and dilated pupils. And some actually think that it was a distillation of henbane, which is the poison poured into the ear of Hamlet's father to murder him. Other people think it was you, but it's not actually specified which one it is. And other people also think Dr Crippen used a pharmaceutical version of henbane to poison his wife in 1910. So why is it useful to witches? Well, because of its properties to cause hallucinations. Some think that it was actually a component in the famous witch's ointment that witches used. This is also sometimes called flying ointment. And some people think it actually enabled them to fly. It's far more likely that it just gave the sensation of flying because of the psychoactive substances in the ointment. Deadly nightshade and wolfsbane are other essential ingredients of this ointment. Niall McCoytier notes a Welsh belief that children who fell asleep near henbane would never wake up again. So obviously, again, this relates to the soporific nature of henbane. But he also relates a particularly weird belief found in a medieval manuscript, and that's that putting henbane on a hair skin and then leaving it in a field would gather all the local hairs around it. So you might be sitting there going, I see, what's this got to do with witches? Well... Many people believed that witches could actually turn into hares on their way to gatherings. So if they saw a hare in a field, they believed it was a witch that had transformed herself and was sort of running away. So if you were then able to gather suspected witches all in one place, that would probably be quite comforting. So on that hand, that's henbane being used against witches. On the other hand, obviously there is an idea that witches actually used it. And some people think that henbane could be used to communicate with the dead. It also sets the seal on binding spells, which can be used actually to bind negative things, so they're not necessarily negative in and of themselves. And in Greek mythology, the dead wore wreaths of henbane as they walked alongside the river Styx. That said, legendary Wiccan author Scott Cunningham actually believes that henbane was useful in love magic. And if worn, it would bring love, given its smell. Not quite sure how that would work, but there you go, that's what he says. He also thinks that if you burn it outside, it would bring rain. Again, I wouldn't advise that because the fumes are incredibly poisonous. So if you want rain, just do the traditional British rain dance and set up a barbecue. So we're going to go from one bane to another, so henbane to wolf's bane. Now, this is also known as Monkshood, and its botanical name is Aconitum napellus, which does sound a lot like a Harry Potter spell. And it was the official poison on Seos, and anyone who was useless to the state essentially was poisoned. The armies of ancient Europe and Asia used it to poison enemy water supplies. The poison is a really nasty one, and it paralyzes the nervous system, lowers blood pressure and eventually stops the heart. It's the poison of choice in the pilot episode of the rather fantastic forensic crime thriller series Forever starring Johan Griffith and it also appears in a mystery novel by A.K. Lakelett called Remember Me, which is highly recommended. However, it's a particularly weird one because it also appears as the herb of choice to ward off the count in the novel Dracula. You might wonder why you would use wolf's bane. So we also know that bane means death So this implies that it would cause the death of wolves. But why would you then use that to ward off a vampire? Well, this could relate to the old belief that vampires could actually turn into wolves. This particular aspect of vampire mythology seems to have been ditched in recent novels in favour of feuds between vampires and werewolves. So we've seen that it's a really nasty poison. And according to Amy Stewart, the Nazis even used it to poison bullets during the Second World War. And Aconite, which is its other name, is actually named after Aconitus Hill, where Hercules fought Cerberus, who was god dog of the underworld. Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft, basically pulled wolfsbane out of Cerberus's saliva. What's really interesting, though, is both Deadly Nightshade and foxgloves act as antidotes to aconitine. So it's quite interesting that you can then cure poisoning from one poisonous plant with another That's just bizarre, but there you go. That's the wonderful world of botany. So you might be wondering, why is it useful to witches? Well, because aconite is so, so incredibly toxic, it doesn't really have any witchy uses apart from flying ointment. So I can only assume that its deadly effects were actually offset because its antidotes were also included in the ointment. And what was quite interesting was the Romans actually banned its cultivation in gardens in 117 AD after a spate of monkshood murders. Now, if that's not the title of a novel, I don't know what is. Ancient Greek hunters actually dipped the arrows in aconite when hunting wolves, hence wolfbane. And some people use it as either a cure for lycanthropy or a means of protecting against werewolves. Earthwitchery.com actually call it a protective plant and they say it's useful for the invocation of Hecate because it's so poisonous. It's beautiful, but I would urge caution and look, but don't touch. Our third plant is Mandrake, Mandragora officinarum. And this is another member of the same family as Henbane and Deadly Nightshade. So Ernst and Johanna Lehner cite the mandrake as the oldest magic plant in botanical history. And they actually note that it appears in the Book of Genesis and also Greek mythology. And many people think that the famous Greek sorcerer Circe, her poisons apparently contain mandrake. They also claim, and I quote, it was common knowledge in medieval time that the mandrake grew under the gallows from the dripping semen of hanged men, end quote. That's lovely. And some people think that mandrake only grows in the dark. It also does have a fascinating history on its own. And the root is also known as both the root of life and the divine root. And because of the fact that its root is like an almost human shape, that probably helped with its name. At one time, people even prized the roots more than gold. So that tells you how much people believed in its powers. Roman physicians used its anaesthetic effects to perform quite complicated surgery. And an excavation of a medieval hospital near Lauda actually unearthed mandrake seeds. So it looks like people were actually aware of its anaesthetic effects much earlier than, well, actual anaesthetic was developed. The most famous tale that I think anybody will have heard, and this relates back to Harry Potter, which we opened the episode with is the belief that the plant actually shrieks when it's uprooted and anyone who hears the shriek dies. So the ancients would tie dogs to the plants and then spur the dogs to run away. So the dog would then pull the root up and the humans would remain out of earshot. I can't help thinking the earmuffs option is a little bit nicer and a bit more cruelty free. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they pull up mandrake roots now. I'm assuming they, they just use earmuffs. Jacqueline Simpson actually points out that the first hand of glory mentioned in English was actually the mandrake root and that was in the 1700s and people kept it as a charm to make coins multiply. Obviously the hand of glory now means something else and if you go way back to episode 1 of the podcast that's where we talk about the hand of glory and the link between the hand and mandrakes. But it is quite interesting that people believe the mandrake grew under the gallows So they also thought that you could cut the hand from a hand criminal to make a hand of glory. So it is quite interesting that you've got the criminal's hand becoming the hand of glory and the mandrake growing below from his bodily fluids, shall we say. So it's quite interesting that they're both linked to the gallows. I do have an article on folklore of the gallows over on the Folklore Thursday website and the link to that is in my blog post. But why is mandrake useful to witches? Many people think that the root grew within the power of dark earth spirits. And some people actually thought that the root even housed a witch's familiar. And then others again think that Mandrake root was one of the components of flying ointment. Otherwise, people believed that the root could rejuvenate lost youth. And apparently, it induced feelings of love and affection. And clairvoyants would use Mandrake root because they thought it enhanced their psychic powers. Walter Lewis and Memory Elvin Lewis note that the link between the Mandrake and the Doctrine of Signatures. And for them it was believed that because the root looked a bit more robust and male, it was useful for masculine diseases, whereas other parts of the plant were used for problems that affected women. Mandrake does also act as a powerful sedative, and in around about 200 BC, Hannibal left drug wine laced with lamandrake in the city of Carthage. The local warriors drank the wine and basically fell into a stupor, and during this period, the Hannibal's forces then retook the city and basically killed all the warriors, Personally, I think that's cheating. In Romeo and Juliet, Mandrake actually laces Juliet's sleeping potion. So while it's not as immediately toxic as wolfsbane or henbane, it's also still not something to use lightly. That's all we've got time for because I do like to try and keep these episodes short because I value your time as I'm sure you do. So these are the three plants I chose to focus on. If you want to see the images that go with them, some of them are absolute corkers. If you go to the website that is linked in the show notes rather than me reading it out again. Uh, You'll be able to see everything. Leave me a comment if you've heard any other weird folklore about these three particular plants. And I will see you next week when we're going to start having a look at a different theme, which is the idea of the King Under the Mountain story. So we're going to be having a look a bit more at storytelling folklore for April. So I will see you next week. I hope you have a cracking time and I will see you soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com and that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!